Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Alex Rees. We're fresh off Prime Minister's questions where Liz Truss has reportedly done substantial amounts of prep. She told the chamber she's a fighter, not a quitter, but it might not be up to her. A seat projection in the Telegraph left the Tories with just four seats if an election was held today, which isn't enough for a five-a-side football team, never mind enough to book out a room in the House of Commons for the 1922 committee. The committee is a secretive group of backbenchers that decides whether a Prime Minister has the support of their MPs to govern. But who runs it? How much power does it really have? Joining me today to discuss them is the former BBC politics correspondent and political editor of The New Statesman and host of Rock and Roll Politics and the author of several books, including The Prime Ministers We Never Had. Steve Richards, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Alex. So first of all, a scandalous falsehood. The 1922 committee wasn't actually founded in 1922. We've just missed its 99th birthday. Why was it originally formed? Well, it was during another Tory crisis in the uh, early 1920s. And a group of them, they met at the Colton Club, which is still a club very much associated with the Conservative Party, most recently the venue of that controversial incident involving Mr Pincher, which was a trigger in the downfall of Boris Johnson. And they gathered and decided to formalise the power of backbench MPs in the Conservative Parliamentary Party. The turbulence then and the the psychological nature of the Tory Parliamentary Party then was very different, actually. Its instincts were loyalty most of the time towards the leadership and their government or whatever. But every now and again, issues erupted where they felt they needed more formal representation, uh, where there were deep disagreements and division. Uh, The big change over the 100 years, actually, has been the nature of that parliamentary party, where they've become, by instinct, more rebellious and insurrectionary. And in that context, I guess the 1922 committee has acquired greater significance over time, rather than diminished significance. We'll talk a bit about that rebellion and that rebellious nature uh, in a bit. So the Conservatives didn't even have leadership elections before 1965. Alec Douglas Home was the last Tory leader appointed by royal prerogative. He beat out Rab Butler, who's one of your prime ministers we never had. How was consensus built about who should lead before they had the current system for it? Yeah, so uh, in a book I've written called The Prime Ministers We Never Had, from Rab Butler to Jeremy Corbyn, Rab Butler was an example of someone who ached to be prime minister, thought he had a very good chance of being, uh, three times, actually. And one of the reasons he didn't is that at that point, uh, Tory leaders emerged, was the term used, and basically a combination of the outgoing leader, senior figures on the front bench, kind of decided on who the successor should be. And then that person, if they were in government, was appointed by the monarch. MPs, let alone party members, were completely bypassed. And as you say, the first leader is very interesting, actually, uh, who was elected by Tory MPs was Edward Heath. And it's interesting because you would have thought when you widen the franchise with Tory MPs, they would have selected a more sort of ebullient, accessible, charismatic figure than Heath. But by quite a big majority, Heath won. Until then, the likes of Harold Macmillan, Anthony Eden, who didn't last very long, they all emerged. And and therefore, the plotting and the intrigue was completely different. You didn't really have to woo Tory MPs in quite the same way or the party members. 
although they did in their own way have an influence. You know, they could sort of inform those who had the um, levers of power who they wanted. But yeah, that's how they did it. It seems bizarre these days, but given the chaos of Tory leaders in recent times, maybe it was more sensible. So back to the present day, it's been reported that Graham Brady, the chair of the committee, has told Liz Truss the traditional threshold of letters of no confidence has been reached. Some are saying he won't act until it reaches 33% of Tory MPs, some say 50%. Why the confusion? Because uh, the rules have not been finally revised if they're going to be. So there's all kinds of speculation. You see, in theory, the rule is very clear that there can't be a vote of confidence in a leader for another year, given that she's just been elected. So lots will have to change to bring this about. And this is where the power of the 1922 committee is considerable. These are the senior backbenchers elected by the other parliamentary part, the rest of the parliamentary party as an executive of the so-called 1922 committee. And if they want to uh, change the rules, they can. If he wants to raise the threshold to trigger a vote of confidence before the year's up, he can. And it's not clear, it's just there are rumours around that he, when he met her, Brady, uh, told her that he was going to raise the threshold, but then a contest would be triggered earlier than the rules suggest. But he is not a briefer. I've known him on and off over the years, Graham Brady. So I think there's a lot of feverish speculation going around. And he famously doesn't give the numbers out. So this figure of 100 Tory MPs who've written letters, maybe it's more, maybe it's less. In a way, that is obviously interesting. But the key is what this mighty group of people decide to do with the rules. And if they decide to change it, it will be a sign that she is in, uh, I think, fatal difficulty. So Graham Brady's the chair. There's actually elections for the 1922 committee happening at the moment. What If you're an MP who is voting for representation on that committee, what are you looking for? What's the ideological, temperamental makeup of the people who are running this committee? Well, in a way, the sort of ideology of this particular group isn't the key thing. I mean, that matters more. As you know, now they elect chairs of select committees and other institutions and agencies. What matters here is a sense that these people really will represent uh, honestly the views of the parliamentary party. In other words, that they are not such big egos and such figures of ideological conviction that they will kind of represent themselves, that they are ruthless messengers to a prime minister or party leader, and that they will carry it out in that way. Graham Brady clearly loves it. You know, I've never seen him look so well. I mean, admittedly, he's been on holiday recently. But he, he loves the role, which tells you a lot about him. He's not bothered particularly, it seems, about being a senior minister. He never has been. But this role of representing the parliamentary party gives him a stage and gives him this regular contact with the prime minister. And when he meets Liz Truss, as he has done several times already, he's not saying, look, I think this, I think that. It's all about Tory MPs. So when he met her at the Tory party conference, he said, if you want to go ahead with the top rate of income tax, you won't get it through the parliamentary party. And he famously has seen her recently to discuss the level of discontent. So he's not talking about himself. He is a representative. And those are the kind of people Tory MPs choose. They know they will speak on their behalf and no more than that. 
So they're not the kind of charismatic orators. These are people who love operating behind the scenes and wielding a certain amount of power at certain points. You know, when a leader is vulnerable, they become absolutely at the centre of the uh, whole drama. It's interesting you reference charismatic orators. There are certain parallels with uh, John Burke when he was in the role of speaker, who you kind of felt relished being in that spotlight and using the mechanisms of parliament, you may argue, to put the agenda in line with his own ideology, whereas Graham Brady is a lot more content to guide his party in the most harmonious direction. I mean, you're right, there should be parallels. The speaker is someone normally who is not so ideologically committed, they would find the idea of just being this neutered, impartial chair impossible. And John Burko did struggle with it towards the end. He was clearly someone of, of, of opinions. And we now know he's joined the Labour Party, so you could see he was on that journey. Um, although I always think the controversy around him was much more to do with the fact that he was Speaker towards the end in a hung parliament. And the government got annoyed when he couldn't get his business through and blamed him. They couldn't get his business through because it was a hung parliament. The 1922 committee, it is their remit to represent the parliamentary party. And so that's what they do. And most of the time, voters don't see them, don't hear from them. And then when there are these dramas and these never-ending leadership contests, they famously dominate the kind of news bulletins as they announce the results of each round, or Graham Brady does, surrounded by the other officers. And the vote vote for them becomes important at times like this. Tory MPs will look around and say, right, for those who want to get rid of Liz Truss, we need a 22 executive who are going to deliver this brutal message to her. And it does need a certain ruthlessness and uh, brutality. I say, really, Theresa May had tough messages from Graham Brady. It, remarkably, in just a few weeks, Liz Truss is getting them. He was less involved in the fall of Johnson. I mean, what brought Johnson down was not a visit from Graham Brady but he just couldn't appoint a government. So it might have come to the same thing in the end, but what brought him down is uh, he, he couldn't form a government. So various things bring about falls of Tory prime ministers. It's not always the 1922 committee, who used to be known as the men in grey suits, who would go and tell a, a leader their time is up. Um, but recently, they featured a hell of a lot. So meetings of the committee are behind closed doors, and we rely on MPs filing out afterwards to tell us how it went. They've been described as funereal in recent weeks. How different is the composition to what we see in the Commons? Are there groupings of MPs we don't see in front of the cameras? Do the caucuses kind of mix themselves up in ways that they can't in the ordinary makeup of Parliament? Well, the the reason the meetings are private, and it's one of the few things left, that does happen in private, you know, select committees are televised, all the House of Commons debates are televised, is the only opportunity where a leader or, and they're addressed, by the way, with all, by all members of the cabinet at different times, can have a sort of relatively candid exchange with their backbenchers uh, in private. Now, actually, in reality, the privacy is only cosmetic because at the end, the backbenchers rush out and tell political journalists what the mood of the meeting was, um, what the prime minister said at the meeting, whether 
in this case she was any good. She had a disastrous meeting with them last week. So it gets out. But the privacy is there in theory for a degree of candour, rather like the meetings of the Parliamentary Labour Party, uh, which are held in private and are often addressed by their leader. So in that sense, although it's called, oh, oh, it's, it's huge, she's meeting the 1922 committee um, of backbench MPs, it's not that different to the Parliamentary Labour Party that meets once a week. Rishi Sunak, without the Tory members, he would now be Prime Minister. There are whispers that a joint ticket of him and Penny Mordaunt could be offered, but understandably, neither would want to be the deputy and neither camp has approved of such messaging. Is it a fantasy that they have any unity candidate? This is the only reason why Liz Truss, as we record this, is still in place. Uh, That although most Tory MPs realise she cannot and will not lead them into the next election, there is no single figure who they can coalesce around. And there was a, a tweet of unintended irony from a political journalist the other day who said, Uh, Tory MPs disagree about who their unity candidate should be. (laughs) And in that sentence, you have a sense of why she's still there as we record this podcast. The last time the Tories were in a similar position was when they toppled Ian Duncan Smith. And instead of having another absurd leadership contest, and he emerged from a wacky leadership contest, they put in Michael Howard. And the reason that worked is that the only other... A potential candidate at the time was David Davis, who pulled out. David Davis is never, he runs a mile on the whole from office, famously resigned as Shadow Home Secretary, resigned as Brexit Secretary, and really wasn't that bothered about being leader. And so Howard got it as a, in a coronation. Uh, and that's not the case this time. So as you'll rightly say, you know, there's been talk of a Sunak Mordant dream ticket. Some may say nightmare ticket. But there's no way Penny Morden will say to Rishi Sunak, oh, yeah, you be prime minister. I'll be some pathetic deputy. She'll want to be prime minister. Jeremy Hunt wants to be prime minister. The only way through this, I suspect, is Brady and his colleagues changing the rules. So there is a one-week contest in which MPs vote, and it will be between at least three candidates. But then it's done within a week. And then I think they will have no choice but to rally round whoever wins that because they can't have another contest. I mean, it's already getting to look like some uh, updated Monty Python sketch if they come to this point. But I think that's the way they will do it because there isn't a single unity candidate. How strong is the hard Brexit caucus here? Because the ERG was a sizable thorn in Theresa May's side. And you would think that certain among them would now say, You know, Truss is a Remainer. She never believed in the Brexit vision. But even people like Steve Baker have offered a bit of contrition over how strong their words were about things like the uh, issue of the Irish border. Does it still work in 2022? Does the electorate or the markets or the 1922 committee, do any of them still relate this to Brexit? Well, this is one of the uh, interesting questions, because in a way, that uh, Kwarteng mini budget was the uh, natural consequence for the hard Brexiteers. Um, They were complaining that under Johnson, Brexit couldn't really take off because he was a sort of tax and spend prime minister. And what they wanted to see were low taxes, a smaller state, and for Britain to be this great, dynamic, modern economy, free from the shackles of Brussels as they saw it. 
and it's been a disaster. So all those close to this hard Brexit, from Frost who negotiated it, to the think tanks that hailed it, all supported that mini budget. They're running miles from it now, but they all did. And in the cabinet, people like Rhys Mogg were out and about hailing that budget with conviction. Most of the other cabinet ministers put up didn't believe it. They just did it because they had to. He believed it. So I think that that viewpoint, which has prevailed at every single junction in the modern Tory party from Cameron succumbing to their pressures to hold a referendum, to winning the referendum, to then insist on the hardest possible Brexit. In a way, that hold that has been absolutely dominant it has been challenged not by internal mechanics, they're still quite strong within the parliamentary party, but by a clash with reality, which is that the economic policies they thought would um, make sense of their Brexit vision have been calamitous. So I wonder whether they will be weaker from now on, but they are dogged and determined, and they will have a say. I mean, she spoke to some of them the other evening, the old ERG group of Tory MPs, European Reform Group of Tory MPs. And she, to woo them, was as tough as ever on Northern Ireland and all the other things. Now, she won't be able to renege on the protocol. She cannot afford a trade war with the EU. The economy can't take another hit. So that's one of her many binds. But I suspect they'll be weaker in the months to come. You said the Tory party has never recovered from rebelling against Thatcher. Some of those who rebelled over the Maastricht Treaty are still there and use the mechanisms of the party to shape it to their will and instigate the Brexit referendum. Can they ever escape Thatcher's shadow? Every now and again, you see tentative signs of some Tory leaders trying to move away from the Thatcher era. So Theresa May talking about the good the state can do words that Thatcher would never have uttered. You have Boris Johnson in his own sort of erratic, eccentric way saying, call me a Rooseveltian, you know, after President Roosevelt, big spending in the United States. Thatcher would never have said, call me a Rooseveltian. She'd have had a nervous collapse if she had uttered those words. But each time the ghost of Thatcher reasserts itself. And so you had this crazy Tory leadership contest where both candidates competed with each other to show who was the great worshipper at the altar. Sunak went up to Grantham with his wife to worship at her statue, trust dressed up as Thatcher. It was a weird reminder of her dominance. But until they escape that uh, shadow, they will continue to be in complete turmoil, because I followed it very closely. Thatcher was a product of the late 70s and early 80s in Britain. And the challenges, I mean, there are echoes now with the 70s, but the challenges were different. The political context was different. Um, And they got to learn to move on. And until they do, I think there will be this just constant instability. Prime ministers being toppled and leaders being toppled until they decide who they really are. And the answer to that question cannot be Margaret Thatcher. She went in 1990. But they are haunted by her. And so are a lot of the Tory MPs, you know, to go back to the 1922 committee. I mean, Graham Brady reveres Margaret Thatcher. Um, but I say that's not really relevant because he's there to represent the rest of them. But until they move away, they can still win elections because England tends to vote Conservative. It, it has a much higher level of tolerance for the Conservatives in a, in a way that 
it could take a psychiatrist to analyse and make sense of. But they do. So they win elections, but they will be in turmoil until they move on. Steve, thank you for joining me. I was just going to ask you in closing, possibly where Brady keeps the letters, if he took them on holiday with him, or if he uh, has them handcuffed to his wrist like the nuclear codes. I'm not going to ask you to predict when Liz Truss will go, because it could be that she'll go before I finish recording this. But how many letters do you think are in Graham Brady's desk right now? What's his next move? No idea, uh, because he doesn't tell and he doesn't brief. No one knows where he keeps them. These are the qualifications for that weird post, an absolute kind of rock solid determination to play things as the Tory MPs want them to be played. So he doesn't brief journalists. Um, so there is speculation. Uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if letters are going in on a daily basis because her performances continue to be, Liz Truss's performances continue to show why she cannot lead them at the next election. Uh, he won't say but what might happen quite soon is he will make a statement saying, I've now had so many representations for the rules to be changed um, that we are going to consider a rule change. And then the committee, the executive will meet, announce a rule change. And as I said earlier, uh, such a sequence will be fatal for Liz Truss. She will just have to go. That could happen at any time. But if you read in advance of that, there are 150 letters in or whatever. People are guessing because he doesn't tell anyone. And that's why he's got this particular job. Steve Richards, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. You can listen to Rock and Roll Politics every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And it's live in London at King's Place on Wednesday, the 26th of October. Listeners, as you may have noticed, the bunkers had a makeover. Our weekly panel show has moved over to our sister podcast, Oh God, What Now? And on this feed, it's all politics all the time, including the new Bunker USA show. If you really like today's podcast, we're also on Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. Offers start at just two quid a month. And for that, you get all the shows early and with no ads. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by me, Alex Reese. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold and Jan Sofronievich. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.